And you can go ahead and turn, if you will, to Mark chapter 12. That's where we're going to be. We're going to be at the last little section of chapter 11. Spend most of our time in chapter 12 this morning. In November of 2006, Ted Haggard got caught. It was one of the most uh, talked about media scandals of the year. Maybe you guys remember it. Ted Haggard was a popular pastor of a 10,000-plus member congregation in Colorado Springs. And he was an advisor to the White House. He was the president of the National Association of Evangelicals, massive organization of, of evangelicals. He was a, a leader of that group and of, and of a group known to most of us as a religious right, a, a very active in politics and seeking a, a conservative social religious values, seeking to put those things into law. He was, a, he was a voice for them. And at the time, he was one of the most prominent voices against gay marriage, which was a hot issue in the 2006 election year uh, because of several states that had put it on their ballot uh, for different amendments to their constitutions. And Haggard came out strong. And then in November of that year, he, it was exposed, and he later admitted that he had had an ongoing relationship with a male prostitute where he received drugs and committed various sexual acts that was later alleged he did the same thing was going on for years with younger members in his congregation even. And it became a moment for fixating the national attention on the hypocrisy of Christianity. It, was, it almost read to me, reading those news stories, like a, a page out of Nathaniel Hawthorne. Maybe you guys were subjected to the Scarlet Letter in high school or college. Uh, if you weren't, I'm afraid I'm about to reveal you know, the main plot of that story. I still recommend you read it. It's really good. Hawthorne's book was a scathing attack of Puritan-style religion in New England. It was a caricature of it. It wasn't accurate, but it, it made its point. It tells the story of a woman who who uh, has a child out of wedlock and is ostracized by her church and her community because of that scandalous act. And towards the end of the book, what you find out is that the person who had gotten her pregnant was the very pastor of the church who had ostracized her in the community and, and sewn this scarlet A for adulteress on her, on her cloak. If you're turned off to religion because you think that all Christians, religious people, are hypocrites. If you're coming at this thing from the perspective of a Hawthorne or in the wake of something like Ted Haggard, you might be surprised at what Jesus has to say in Mark chapter 12. I think we all instinctively hate hypocrisy. There's something about a hypocrite in in literature, in movies, when you, when you identify that person who is holding others to standards that they aren't willing to abide by themselves when the doors are closed, there's something about you that just aches to see that person exposed and brought to justice. We, we hate them. And I think one of the reasons is that we, we see those tendencies in ourselves. We see that at some level, we try to get away with what we can when the doors are closed. And it takes one to know one, right? You hate it when someone else gets away with something that you... That, that you're trying to get away with. I think Jesus, in Mark chapter 12, identifies one of the core reasons for the fruitlessness 
in the religion of his day that he had condemned in chapter 11, which we looked at last week. He comes into the temple. He sees they're not praying, but they're using the temple as this sort of marketplace where they can get rich off of each other. He drives them out and uses this powerful image of a fig tree that he dries up with a word as as, as a representation of the fruitlessness of this style of religion. I think in chapter 12 what we get is Jesus identifying one of the core reasons for that fruitlessness. Is that the leader's? The Jewish religion had traded in a God-centered focus for an attempt to get ahead. Hypocrisy was the bottom line reason for the fruitless religion Jesus came to challenge. I think that's what Jesus is saying in Mark chapter 12. I think if you've given up on Christianity or have concerns about Christianity because of hypocrisy, you ought to give the founder of Christianity a chance to make his case first. That's what we see here in chapter 12. The story takes place in the temple. This has been the destination for much of Jesus' journey throughout Mark. Almost, uh, literally, majority of the book sees Jesus marching that way to Jerusalem where he would have this final climactic confrontation with the powers that be, a, a confrontation that he knew already would end in his death, but that he marches to anyway because that's what he came to do. It ends with the temple, a symbol of God's presence with his people, and the heart of what gave the Jews a special and unique identity in the midst of this occupation by the Roman powers. That's where he was headed to do business with these religious leaders. When he gets there, we saw last week, he doesn't waste any time. And in the end of chapter 11, we see them finally come, it comes to a head. They, they come at Jesus, challenging him on the issue of authority. They've done this before on some isolated issues. This one is more all-encompassing. They come at him and say, who gave you the authority to do the things that you're doing and to, to teach the things that you've been teaching? Jesus is evasive, at least on the, the, the basics. He doesn't answer them in the way that they were hoping that he would because he knows where their question is coming from. What he does is come right at them. Knowing that this is going to end in his death, he embraces it and brings it on through challenging these leaders where it hurts most. Here he does, he does this with a parable first. This is where we're headed today. A parable first that sets the stage, that sort of identifies the key players in this drama and, and begins to call them out for what he's going to illustrate later on in individual confrontations with each of them. So it starts with this parable of the tenant farmers. Then, it moves, then the story moves to one by one, these groups of religious leaders attacking Jesus, trying to, to trap him in some sort of contradiction or in some sort of unpopular position. And then, and then it concludes with Jesus presenting an alternative way of doing religion, another portrait, a solution to religious hypocrisy. That's where we're going to head today. If you wouldn't mind, will you please stand with me as we read our passage? This is going to begin in Mark chapter 11, verse 27. And it's a long one, so get comfortable on your feet. We're going all the way to the end of chapter 12. This is the word of the Lord. And they came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him, and they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? And Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I'll tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven... Or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he'll say, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, 
They were afraid of the people, for all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We don't know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower and leased it to the tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of that vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat, some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing the hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. And Sadducees came to him, who say that there's no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. The second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, This is not the reason you are wrong. Isn't this not the reason you're wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob? He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he had answered them well, he asked, Which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. As Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself, in the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. And in his teaching, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. This is God's word. You can be seated. Jesus begins his engagement with the religious leaders of Israel with a parable. It's a parable that sets the stage for everything that's coming later. It's a parable ultimately about judgment. This is the last one of the parables Jesus is going to use. We've seen these before in Mark. Mark has recorded some of Jesus' teachings uh, already, back in chapter 4 in particular. Parable is just a story that would be told using very familiar imagery from that culture... And the story is designed to to illustrate a point that's being made. That somehow that point could be made better with a vivid analogy than it could be just through some sort of proposition. That's the idea behind a parable. And Jesus uses the one here. What he promises through this parable is a judgment so severe that Mark tells us it left the religious leaders ready to kill him right after. This, this is a parable that draws from the imagery of tenant farmers. It would have been very familiar to people living in Jesus' day. It was a system kind of like you may have read about in the medieval Europe, sort of a feudal system, or even 100 years ago in this part of the country, the sharecropper system, where you'd have a, a, a very wealthy landowner who would have more land than he could personally oversee. And so what he would do is hire some people who would come and live full-time on that land. They could make use of it themselves, And they could use some of the the profits of those crops, but they would essentially have to pay rent for it. They would have to give him a chunk of those crops for the use of his land. That way everyone was helped out. That's the system that was in place at this time. It would have been really familiar. And Jesus uses it to suggest a group of leaders. Essentially, this is what it does. A group of leaders entrusted with responsibility to produce something for someone else who then use that trust, that responsibility, to produce something only for themselves. The story's got two purposes. It condemns Israel's leaders, 
and he warns that God is going to judge him. So the critique of their leaders, it's a, the ones who just come at him in verses 27 through 33, it's pretty straightforward. The vineyard here is a very familiar symbol for Israel. The prophet Isaiah had used it back in Isaiah chapter 5 as a way of describing what Israel is to God, as a vineyard, a place for bearing fruit, a, a sort of realm for, for bearing fruit to God. They would have known, hearers of this parable would have known, that Israel is represented by this vineyard. Those who are tenant farmers, who are entrusted with, with producing some fruit in the vineyard, those are the ones who are Israel's main leaders, the same ones who've come at Jesus. Time and again, God had sent his servants in the past, just like the the, the, the Lord sends servants one after the other into this vineyard. And time and again in the history of Israel, the prophets had been ostracized or beaten or killed. And in this story, the, the great Lord decides he's going to send his son. What you should be seeing is an, is an image of patience, of, of a Lord who, is, who does not come when that first servant is rejected and wipe out those who had been running his vineyard. He could have done that. He was legally... Uh, within his rights to do that, and he doesn't. He sends more. We're told he sends many of them. And they should be hearing in their minds the stories of the history of Israel that they would have grown up hearing about, stories where the prophets are mistreated so badly. And now here they're told that that the Lord of of the vineyard has a son, the last one that he could send. And that sending that son to the, the, the leaders of the vineyard ends up getting this son killed. It should have been clear to them. Where earlier parables had sort of made things more fuzzy, this one would have been crystal clear that he was claiming to be the son that was sent by the Lord. He was predicting his own death. And in predicting his own death, he was actually making it certain that it would come about. These guys knew exactly who they were talking about. Jesus is claiming to be the son of God, claiming to be sent here to die. But the parable doesn't end with the death of the son. The parable really uses that death to set up the climax. The real thrust of what Jesus is saying is that judgment is coming. I love the way that he poses it in a question. Verse 8, or verse 9 rather, says, after after the son had been killed and thrown out of the vineyard, he simply asks, what do you think the the owner of the vineyard is going to do? You think he's going to let that stand? No, he's coming. And he quotes Psalm 118, this psalm that had been associated with the coming of the Messiah, to remind them that for this cornerstone to be put in place, for Israel to be built upon this cornerstone, it's got to first be rejected. That's part of the plan all along. It's marvelous because that rejection is God's doing. That's the point of Psalm 118. The parable, in other words, ends with the vindication of the Lord of the vineyard. It ends in the judgment of those who had abused the trust that they'd been given. That's the point of this parable. And the religious leaders know who he's talking about. They know who he's talking about. Jesus knows what they're going to do. It's a collision course. And he wholeheartedly embraces that course. So the question I think is raised by the story is that if, it's, if this story is meant as a warning... What is it that these guys are specifically guilty of? And what would it take for them to avoid the judgment that's coming? If the parable is supposed to set up his confrontation with the religious leaders, 
if what it warns of is a judgment on those who had abused a trust given to them and, and used it for their own gain rather than for the sake of the God who had given them that trust, if that's what he's warning about, the question is, what specifically had they done and what would it take to avoid judgment? I think those are the two questions that the, the remainder of this confrontation answers. The bulk of what comes what follows this in chapter 12 is given to explaining where these religious leaders had gone wrong. And, he, and Jesus does that with a one-by-one encounter with each major group of those leaders. The group that, that challenged him at the end of chapter 11 was most likely representatives of a group called the Sanhedrin. It was a ruling body. The Roman Empire would allow local groups of rulers to have a lot of influence over the way that that particular sector would, would operate. They didn't impose a, lot, a really strong hand uh, the, the Roman leadership. And the Sanhedrin was one of the most important governing bodies at this time in, in Israel. The Sanhedrin was made up of three primary groups, and it's those groups that come at Jesus one by one through the rest of chapter 12. It's made up of the Pharisees, of the Sadducees, and the scribes. Look, look just so you'll know where we're headed. Verse, beginning in verse uh, 13, the Pharisees come at Jesus. Then beginning in verse 18... The Sadducees come at Jesus. And then in verses 28, but especially in verses 38, Jesus, verse 38 and following, Jesus turns his sights on the scribes. Each group, one by one, comes at him, and each one tries to trap him. And when they do, Jesus flips where it is they were trying to, to pin him down and explains that, in fact, they were guilty of a central flaw. Their flaw was that they had exchanged a focus on God Love for God, for God's sake. We're focused on getting ahead through the things that God had given to them, this trust. That's, that's the underlying principle that we're going to see in each of these cases. Now let's get to the cases, one by one. First group to bring a challenge to the Pharisees, or to Jesus, is the Pharisees. We've seen them time and again in Mark. They're probably his most frequent enemy. And they come at him with these words of flattery. They try to set him up with, with promising or, or, or at least layering it on pretty thick that they think he's true, that they think he comes from God and that he has wisdom. And that's why we're asking you these things. But Jesus sees straight through it. Jesus knows their hypocrisy. Mark tells us that. Jesus knows their hypocrisy. And so he flips their question. The question itself gets at taxes. This was a really, really hot-button issue in, in Roman Israel. It's probably referring to a poll tax. And they asked Jesus quite simply, is it lawful for us to pay taxes or not? The reason it was such a hot button issue is that even just, just merely a generation or two before Jesus was walking the earth, there had been a revolt in Israel over this very tax. One of the, the nationalists who wanted to see Israel independent from Rome had used this as a rallying cry when they established this tax on them. And, and he, had, he had gotten together a band of men, and they caused a lot of trouble, a lot of violence against the Roman Empire. It really sounds a lot like the stuff we're familiar with from elementary school that happened just before the revolution in America, where there was this great uh, angst about the stamp tax or the, the, uh, the tax on tea. You know, the Boston Tea Party example, where they're throwing tea off of the, uh, off of the ship outside Boston. That, that's kind of what this tax represented in Israel. It represented an unjust imposition of an imperial power on the rights of Jewish citizens. They wanted to pin Jesus down because what they were thinking was that it's incompatible to serve both God and 
pay the tax. It's a one or another choice. That's, that's the way they come at this. And Jesus knows that's what they're trying to do. He calls them on it. Why put me to the test? But then gives them an answer that they would never have expected. It's an answer that turns the question in a different direction. He tells them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. The point is that Jesus acknowledges government as something that's appropriate. It's appropriate. It's established by God. It's given for the good to to establish order. And it's legitimate to contribute to it, to uphold it. But that government is also limited. It's limited by the fact that you owe certain things to God that that is a primary responsibility of yours. And if if the government tries to infringe on that responsibility, it, it would be pushed to it. In this case, the choice doesn't have to be made. There's a legitimate claim to your money, and there's a legitimate claim to service to God. And here's really the rub. This is where he really gets at the Pharisees. Remember to read this account in light of that parable. The parable was one of judgment for people who took what was God's and used it for themselves. They refused to give to God the fruit that was rightly his. That's the parable Jesus has just told. In telling the Pharisees now that it's right to give to Caesar what's Caesar's, but you've got to also give to God what's God's. He's calling them out for their refusal to give God what's God's due. He flips their challenge to him and makes it a challenge against them. And as in the case of these stories we're going to get to later, the fundamental challenge that he brings is that they've lost sight of their, of their first and foremost obligation to God. They had not given to God what's God's. The second group that comes at him is the Sadducees. Now, these were the upper crust. This was a more exclusive band of leaders. Uh, They were more powerful, more wealthy, and way more conservative on the issues of the law. So, whereas the Pharisees and many other Jews would have accepted the books that we know as as the first five in our Old Testament, things like Genesis and Numbers and Deuteronomy, they would have also accepted things like the Psalms or things like the, the books of history, First and Second Chronicles, for instance, or some of the prophets as authoritative. The Sadducees refused to accept anything but those first five books as authoritative. One implication of this was that they denied the spirit world. They didn't believe there was anything like angels and demons, and they didn't believe that there was a possibility of life after death. Those first five books, the Bible don't say anything about those subjects. We only get any kind of reference in the Old Testament in places like the Psalms or in some of the prophets. The first five books are about laws, about structuring the life of this community under God. They're not about things like this. So the Sadducees say, if, they don't, if these five books don't say it, then it's not true. So they come at Jesus trying to trap him in absurdity. They try to lump him in with the majority who believe in the resurrection, and then they select this point of Moses' law that they think makes any belief in the resurrection crazy. The point of law is, is a concept known as leveret marriage. You've got to remember that in this ancient time, having descendants was everything. It's the way that you carried on your family name. It's the way that you passed on your property. And it's the way that you survived in your old age through younger generations who would take care of you. So if someone doesn't have children and dies and leaves a widow with no children to watch after, it's a, it's a major social problem. And so there was a law developed in the law of, of, of Moses to take care of this situation. It would be the, the brother's responsibility to then marry this widow 
and give her children. So they come at him with this, this, this hypothetical case that they've worked up. What if the same woman gets married to seven different brothers without having any children, and then she dies? Whose wife would she be? And you can see that the almost sarcasm that's built into this account. They think, we've got him now. He's backed into a corner. Jesus' response to them is, it's brilliant. He says to them, there are, essentially, well, he boils it down as there are two problems with your question. Look at verse 24. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you're wrong? Because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. You know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. They miss the Scriptures because in spite of the fact that they believe in the first five books of Moses, they've missed the implication that the God who reveals himself to Moses reveals himself as the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. That's why Jesus points them there. The implication is that if God can speak of himself as a promise-keeping God who has made promises to men who are now dead, if those men don't live on in some other state, the promises went unfulfilled and the God himself is untrue. But by claiming to be the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, these men who are, who are now dead, he is claiming essentially that those promises will be fulfilled to those men at another time. Jesus' conclusion that he draws is that he's the God of the living, not the dead. You missed the point because you don't understand even the scriptures that you do recognize as authoritative. That's the problem with their understanding of the scriptures. They also... Jesus says, miss the power of God. They don't understand or fully appreciate the power of God. I think what he means here, based on what he says right after, is that they expect that that the resurrected state, that some sort of life after death, would have to look exactly like this world. They can't imagine anything being true that's not in their immediate experience. If they can't understand it, it must not be there. And so they assume that Marriage works the same way in the resurrected state as it would in in ours. Jesus doesn't put God in that kind of box. He says in in, in heaven they're neither married nor given in marriage. It's a fundamentally different kind of existence with a different sort of relationship structure. He doesn't want them putting God in a box because God's power won't be contained there. I think that's where Jesus hammers the Pharisees or the, the Sadducees. They're guilty in other words, of the same thing that the Pharisees were guilty of. They had underestimated God and elevated their own understanding. They had used their position of leadership, even their position of of authority on the issues of the law, and they had used it to establish themselves rather than to make God glorious. That's the problem with both the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And when Jesus turns his attention to the scribes, we see it's the same problem with them. Verse 38, that's the core of his attack on the scribes. He says, beware of them. These scribes like to walk around in long robes. They like their greetings in the marketplaces. They like to have the best seats in the synagogues, the places of honor at the feasts, and they make these long prayers. But they do it because they like the fame that they get from it. They have taken their position as experts in the the law. These people who know the writings of the Old Testament better than anyone else, 
who are supposed to have seen there the call to love God first and foremost, the, who are supposed to have seen there the, the many images of God's greatness and His love, the kinds of things that are to stir them up to a love for God. And they've taken that position of authority and used it to get ahead in this world. They pray, but they pray their long prayers so that people will praise them for their piety. They're in it to get ahead even at the cost of others, even the poor widows whose houses they ravage. I think you can see, hopefully, the underlying theme is clear enough by this point that, that the problem with all of Israel's leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes, is that they have neglected the God who established them as leaders in his vineyard. He had called them to lead his people to faithfulness, to love for him, and a rest in his provision that's expressed by obedience to his law. And their responsibility was to cultivate what belongs to God and to do that for God's sake out of service to him, motivated by love for him. Yet they've made their positions into opportunities to serve their interests, to profit off the vineyard rather than yield its fruit over to the one who had put them in place. They don't see God in light of his power, in light of the certainty that he's coming back in judgment. And because of that, they play fast and loose with what he had given them. That's the problem. That's the root cause of their hypocrisy. Claiming to represent God, they only represent themselves. Now, if you've held back from Christianity because you view its leaders as hypocrites, I'm not going to tell you this morning that you're wrong. I just say don't reject, don't reject Christianity because of weakness in those who claim Christianity, but consider instead what its founder, Jesus himself, had to say. There is no greater critic of this hypocrisy, especially religious hypocrisy, than Jesus was. And if you're not concerned with hypocrisy today, if you're a believer, maybe been a believer for a while, and that isn't on your radar screen, let me say that it should be. Because we are all laced through with it. I think, I mentioned this earlier, I think that's one of the reasons that we hate hypocrites when we come across them in in real life or in, in fiction or in movies. We hate them because we see ourselves in them and it takes one to know one. I think it's... I think it's an everyday battle, even for those of us who have believed for years, to love God for God's sake. We're not leaders of Israel, and I don't want to go too far with drawing a parallel between what it is Jesus condemns here and what we could be guilty of in our own experience. It's a, it's a pretty unique case. But as a leader in, in this church, I'll admit I, there is not a day that goes by that I am not guilty of thinking of my religion and a position of religious leadership as a means of getting ahead, getting something that I want, of gaining some sort of reputation for myself. I mean, there's not much money in it. I mean, let's all just be honest. But there, there are other certain sorts of things that bolster ego that can come with a successful ministry. And there's not a day that, that I am not guilty of, of wanting those things. And, and even if you're not in the kind of position of leadership that it can even closely be compared to what Jesus is condemning here. Let me suggest that if you look closely at your own life, you'll find areas where you're also guilty of similar hypocrisy. Because all of us have, at some point or another, 
used service for others, for instance, as a way to win a reputation of service for others. We've all used leadership in whatever capacity as a way of getting some sort of reputation or fame. We've all used obedience to the letter of the law as a source of superiority over people that we don't think obey the law in the way that, we, that they should. Some, at some level, I think we've all got a hypocrite inside of us. And if that's true, if that's true, how can we avoid it? How do we fight back? How do we avoid the judgment that Jesus says comes on those who abuse the positions that God has put them in? That's the main question. That's where I want to spend the last few minutes of our time. Fortunately, Jesus' words aren't simply judgment. In the middle of all this controversy, Jesus identifies two positive examples of our posture towards God, what it should look like for us to relate to God well. It boils down to a call to love. The only solution to religious hypocrisy, to using religion as a means to serve ourselves, is a love of God for God's sake and a love that takes everything you've got. And that's what Jesus communicates in these two examples. The first is an exchange with a well-meaning scribe, one of the scribes who apparently had not been infected by the self-serving tendencies of the other group and others in the group. In verse 28 and following, Jesus runs into this guy who is impressed by the way that he addresses the, the, the Sadducees' questions, and he wants to hear what Jesus has to say on his question. His question is simple. What's the most important commandment? It's a classic scribe kind of question. They were all about getting into the nitty-gritty details of the law and figuring out how the different laws related to each other. What's the most important one? Jesus' answer goes to the heart of the law. It goes first to the fact that there is only one God. And that means that anybody else, whether the gods of other nations or any other religious leader or any one of us, who tries to take over as a top priority or as the object of service or devotion, that person, no matter who it is, is a usurper because there's one God and one only. And the only adequate response to that God, if the fact that there's one God and, and only one God, is wholehearted, entire being, love for that God. That's Jesus' claim. The scribe knows what Jesus is saying. He gets it. He repeats everything that Jesus said and adds to the end of it that without this kind of love, burnt offerings and sacrifices are empty. He understands that religious performance, that, that, that doing religious acts are meaningless. The things that the Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes had used to establish their authority are all empty and worthless if they don't come first and foremost from a, a, a heartfelt love for God. That's his claim. The, the scribe gets it. All religious service, as important as it may be, is empty if not rooted in this kind of love. And that's what the religious leaders lacked in all their pretension. They lacked the one thing that is most necessary to please God. And this is a crucial point. This gets at the heart of Christianity itself. Notice what Jesus is doing here. Jesus roots the driving force that motivates and shapes what Christianity, what his followers are to do and to be, not in a negative but in a positive call. I think maybe a, a lot of us are used to Christianity being a list of, of don'ts. Maybe you've even come to see Christianity as some sort of straitjacket that limits who you can be. 
And there are plenty of don'ts. And Jesus himself has, has called for self-denial, a kind of negative concept, many times already. He's called on his followers to take up their cross, to put aside their interest in getting ahead in this world, to embrace suffering with him. But he's never used self-denial as an end in itself. It's always as a means to something greater. He always says, deny yourself this set of things so that you can get this other set of things that is much more glorious. Deny yourself the fleeting pleasures of this world so that you can get God. That's his point. Christianity is based first and foremost on a call to love God as the motive that leads us to freedom from fundamental selfishness. Christianity isn't first a suppression of love and beauty and desire so much as it's a retargeting of desire. It calls for a a satisfaction and enjoyment and a fulfillment in God in place of the other thing. I I don't think anyone has ever said it better than C.S. Lewis has in The Weight of Glory. It's a famous quote. Maybe you've heard it. Lewis put it this way. If we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us, like like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he can't imagine what's meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. The problem, according to Lewis, is that we're too easily pleased. I think we're to see Jesus' list of negatives, his his strong condemnation of each of these religious leaders, his condemnation for their hypocrisy as first and foremost rooted in a positive call to love God for God's sake. Now, here's the problem with that. At least here's my problem with it. I understand the concept the call to love God fully, but it's still abstract. What does it actually look like in practice to love God in this way? To love him, as Jesus has said, with every part of your being, with your heart and soul and mind and strength. We can't fully answer that question this morning, but I, I close by pointing you to the illustration Jesus gives us. I think the reason Jesus tells the story of this widow who gives her last two cents into the offering, is to give us an illustration of what all-in love of God looks like. Jesus concludes his controversy with the religious leaders by changing location. He takes a seat near the offering basket, essentially, near what's called the treasury in the temple. It's where people would come to make their contributions. Now, he sees many folks coming by and dropping in huge sums, rich folks who, who had it to give. But I think the implication here is that they're just like the scribes that he's just described, the ones who like their long robes and their long prayers. They make large donations, in other words, for show. But the emphasis here is that it's all show and no real sacrifice. It's like if Bill Gates was to give $100 million to eradicate AIDS in Africa, we'd all clap him on the back for it, and it would be great. And it's a good thing that we should celebrate, but... In terms of his actual experience, his life on the ground, he's not going to feel that at all. It's numbers on a screen. It doesn't affect his lifestyle, right? That's what these gifts from these rich people were. They they, they don't actually translate into any real on-the-ground sacrifice. 
By contrast, the widow approaches a member of one of the most disadvantaged classes in that patriarchal society. They didn't have any means of independent support. They didn't work without a husband. They didn't have anyone to provide for them. They were at the lowest end of the totem pole. And here comes this widow. She's got two small coins that put together make a penny. And the currency isn't exactly, there's no transfer between our currency and theirs, but you get the point. A penny was not a lot even then. It was all she had. It was everything she had to live on, Mark says. But she gives it all. This is Jesus' model for us. So what's going on? What is it that we're supposed to see here? I think she gave everything because she's motivated first and foremost by a love that's centered on God. And her primary criteria for joy, for her own happiness, for her own security, was not wealth or praise like drove the rich, the gifts of the rich folks, but the good of the object that she loved. The reason she could give her last cent, everything that she had, everything she had to live on, is that what she identified as good was the good of the one that she loved. Love, true love, involves two things. It involves an attraction to beauty in the object that you love. It involves recognizing something that is good there and loving it. And it involves the intention to seek the good of the thing that you love. When we say that we love someone in this life, we we usually are attracted to them in some way, and we find something wonderful in, in them, about them, and we mean that we live for them. That's what this widow has done. There was something about God that she didn't find elsewhere. There was something about God that promised her she didn't need the security even her little money would provide her. And so she gives it all. It's like the way it works with parenthood or with your spouse. When I say that I love Lindsay, it's because there's something about her that I find to be beautiful, appearance and character and personality. And it attracts me to her with with love. But that kind of, to go that far is not to fully complete the picture. It has to also lead me to seek her interests even above my own, not because, not in place of my own, but because my interests are her interests. What I want to see happen is for her to have what she needs. This widow was not giving away everything she had. She was investing it. She didn't see it as loss, but as gain, because the thing that she loved was the thing that defined for her what she had. She had attached her interest to his. That's what this love looks like. There's your illustration. If you want to avoid religious hypocrisy, you've got to love God for God's sake. You've got to be motivated by a desire to see him made much of by the world. You've got to be motivated by a desire to see his interests, his glory pushed forward in your own life and the lives of others for its own sake. Not because of what you'll get out of it, but because that is what gives you joy. There's no byproduct. It is what is glorious. That's the call of Jesus. It's the only solution to religious hypocrisy. And it's a lifelong goal. That's lofty. And it's only attainable through his grace. Let's pray together for that grace. Lord God.